You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. All right, good morning, everyone. How we doing? Awesome. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Jake, and we are on the back half of our Colossians series now. And as we get into it, I want to ask you all a question. Um, What do you do with frustrating people? Like you personally, like how do you deal? I already got some awkward giggles. That's fun. Uh, What do you do with frustrating people perhaps uh, in your life group? Don't look at them. Don't nudge them right now. But what do you do with that? Like what happens in life group and there's someone who just, you know, despite the leader saying, hey, let's be mindful of everyone's time. They just talk for a very long time and eats at everyone's time sharing and it sort of throws off the night. Like, what do you do with that? Or what do you do with the person who's just, their personality is just a bit abrasive and gruff and they just, you know, say it like it is. And it just, you know, gives a weird vibe to the group and people get a little timid sharing because they're afraid of opening up, saying something vulnerable, and then that person speaking into them. Like, what do you do with that? Or what do you do with the person who you can almost predict week by week, they are going to say the same thing over and over and over again. Like, what do you do with those frustrating people? What do you do when you find yourself to be one of those frustrating people? Because I'll tell you, like in the last... Uh, having done small groups in some way, shape, or form for like the last 20 years. Like I have found myself being one of those three people over the course of time. So what do you do with those frustrating people? And that's what we're going to get at today. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. I would invite you to turn there, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. And this is the second part of a two-parter. So Pastor Tim from Citizens Church up in Charlotte came last week and spoke on the idea of sanctification, but namely mortification is the theological word. The idea of killing sin and putting it to death. And this is the second part. Uh, If you want to get theological with it, the word is vivification. How do we get the life of Jesus into us? How can we, to stem back from how we've talked about Colossians, how can we embody heaven in us, the kingdom of God dwelling in us? How do we do that? Colossians chapter three is that answer. So what I want to do, I want to pray for us to start our time and then we'll read the passage and we'll get into it. So let's pray. Spirit, help us to be sensitive to your word. Help our hearts to be good soil so that as we hear the word of God proclaimed that you would bear that into our soul and that the spirit could do growth in us, that as we go out and as we leave and as we're encountering others, that we might be reminded of the word that you are speaking to us today and that your spirit would prompt us to move into repentance. So help us, Jesus, we need you. In your name we pray, amen. All right, Colossians chapter three, verse 12, I'll go ahead and read that for us. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. 
and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So here, Paul has given us this big idea, this vision of what it looks like to be a people who are following Jesus together. That churches ought to be this little outpost of heaven on earth, that Jesus has absorbed our sin on the cross. He has conquered death, and now he invites everyone from everywhere to lay down their lives and follow him now. So the aim that we said earlier, the aim of the New Testament is not so much about getting into heaven after you die, although that is part of the New Testament. The bigger thrust is getting more and more of heaven into us before we die as followers of Jesus. And when we are doing this, all of us together going into this direction, that we ought to be the most compelling, beautiful, countercultural community on the planet that the world has ever seen. That even though when you look out there and the world is full of bitterness and anger and cynicism, when someone steps into a group of people who love Jesus, whether that be at a gathering or at a group, that they notice these people are smiling. They like to be around each other. They're hugging each other. Who, No matter their background, they see their dignity and value that even if their life is filled with painful circumstances, they're at peace with life and where it has them. And Paul says, the way you do this, this how we get the life of Jesus into us, it's, it's two parts. Well, kind of like part zero is you become a Christian and you place your faith in Jesus and trust him as Lord and Savior and you are adopted into the family of God. And then part one, you kill sin in your life, like we talked about last week. And then that part two is you put on the qualities and the attributes of Jesus. You infuse them into your life. So here, Paul's assumption is to grow into the way of Jesus assumes that we have agency on our part. It assumes we are doing things. Like, yes, we are saved by grace through faith apart from works. And now that we are saved, we do good work so that we might get more and more of the life of Jesus into us. And through the Spirit, like this sort of life Paul talks about is actually possible. It's not like he's telling us something and it's like the bar is so impossibly high, good luck with that. But rather through the Spirit, we are able to live into these sorts of people Paul talks about in Colossians 3. As Dallas Willard, one of my favorite thinkers on spiritual formation, he says this. He says, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it were true. In other words, he's saying it's not enough just to agree to the intellectual facts or to say out loud, I believe in all of the intellectual facts about scripture, but rather if you really want to say you believe something, you live into what you believe. So what I thought I would do for a few minutes is just kind of explain how all of this works. How is it that people change? How do we put on Christ in the language of Colossians 3.12? How do we look more and more like Jesus? So uh, the way the New Testament talks about it, the way that uh, the scripture authors speak into it and that we've adapted from people who have talked about this is really three things. How we grow into the image of Jesus. It is God's word, it's the teaching, it's being in community, and it's practicing these things together. So for those of you that love a good graph, today's your week. I've got a good graph for us that explains this. Here it is on the screen right now. 
There we go. These three things working together, playing off of each other, creates the environment by which the Spirit can work in us to look more like Jesus, that over time, doing these three things, we put on the character of Christ. So we have teaching. So we want to know God's word. We want to saturate our lives with everything the Bible says because the Bible is our compass. It's our North Star. Scripture is God's invitation to us to see reality for what it really is. That the world, the culture, our flesh, our feelings want to tell us what reality is, but we have scripture to remind us what reality actually is. So near everything we do, near everything we do in here, from how we operate on Sundays to song selection, to how we preach, to how we do life groups throughout the week is all oriented around what the Bible says. This is why when we teach and when we gather in groups, the expectation is we are opening up the Bible, we're talking about it, we're studying it, we're asking, what does the Bible say? And then there's that second component of practice. We want to hear what God's word says, and then we want to do that. We want to live that out by the Spirit. So it's not just enough to fill our minds with teaching about the Bible, although that is a great thing. Yes and amen. Big fan of that. And the Bible talks a lot about living into what the Bible says. In fact, um, oftentimes in Paul's letters, what you often get, and sometimes it doesn't cut this cleanly, but oftentimes in Paul's letters, it's usually about 50% theology and 50% application. So he gives us all of the big, like, heady, intellectual, theological truth, and then he will say, therefore, here's how you live this out. Therefore, here's how you apply this. And so we try to mimic that as much as we can in our preaching and our teaching, give us theology, but then what does that actually mean? Because that's following the pattern of what scripture says. It's not enough just to proclaim the facts, but how do we live that out? Because if we don't, we can't actually get more of heaven into us. Information alone does not transform us. It's information through the power of the spirit to live it out in community. Or there was a, there's a Christian psychologist who writes a lot on formation, and he was sort of saying, man, uh, information alone does not change you, does not help you become more and more like Jesus. Because, and he used this example that was really stark, he was like, you could be an unregenerate psychopath and score all A's in seminary, and that do nothing to your soul to make you look more like Jesus, but you need to know the teachings of Jesus and put it into practice. That's how we change. And then there's that last component, community, that putting on Christ. It's a team project to be these sorts of people requires we get around others to do life together. And church family is the primary vehicle by which we grow to look more like Jesus. And this is why we do life groups, that the way we do them, uh, confessing sin together, all of that stuff is so that we can do this, do all of this together. Joseph Hellerman in his book, When the Church Was a Family, says this. He says, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. And this is why church is so critical in our discipleship to Jesus, to put on the way of Jesus, not just showing up to a gathering on Sunday, though that is great, but committing to a body of people, getting around others, doing life together, 
getting people who see the best parts of you and the worst parts of you who could speak into it and speak Jesus into you and vice versa so that you could do that for others so that you can speak Jesus into other people doing life together. So we wanna pray and we wanna confess sin and we wanna study the scriptures and when we can share meals together because this is how Jesus grows us to be more like him. And I get it. Like some people get thrown off by that in life groups. You know, uh, man, we ask a lot from life groups of like, hey, we're asking you to confess sin. We're asking you to like reschedule how you view stuff so that you can prioritize being around Jesus-centered community. Like I get that can be really hard and uncomfortable, like confessing sin. That can be a really uncomfortable thing. And yet, when you look at scripture and God's saying, this is how we grow to be more like Jesus, it's like, okay, well then let's reprioritize. Let's step into the uncomfortable. If this is the way we get to be more like Jesus, then it's worth it. And these three concepts, they work together, they play off each other. Like I said, it becomes the environment by which the spirit can work in us so that slowly over time, we put on Christ and start to look more like Jesus. We start to get more of heaven into us now, but it's a slow process. And so this is what we're trying to accomplish in everything that we do as a church. This is why, and I love this, when you read the early church fathers, Oftentimes, a common refrain when they talk about church family is they're thinking about this formation category, and they say that church is called the school of love. And I'll tell you, that sounds weird to me. Like if, uh, if a church nowadays was called, you know, Midtown Fellowship, colon, the school of love, I would think that's weird. What's going on there? But it's this idea of church family, getting people together who want to follow Jesus becomes the training ground by which we become these sorts of people. It's like, look, you wanna be a more forgiving person? That's awesome, here's how you do it. You get around other people who are really hard to forgive and you have to put that into practice. That's how you become that sort of person. You wanna be a more loving person? That's awesome, here's what you do. You get around people who are really hard to love and you choose to love them instead of hold back. That's how you become a person of love and forgiveness. And growth will happen over time, but it takes some time. In the same way, uh, this is really silly. Uh, in the same way, if I wanted to hypothetically be like a super swole muscle guy, okay, for example, it doesn't mean I just like go to the gym once a week and just like sit on a bench and just watch people exercise and then go home and say, man, I did my part. I went to the gym. It's like, no, I have to like go there. I have to do the things. I have to put my body under some discomfort that I don't necessarily want to do. I got to put in the reps and slowly over time, the gains come, all right? In a similar way, church family becoming the school of love is that we step into church family together, week in, week out, showing up to gatherings, showing up to groups, putting in the reps, so to speak, putting our bodies into some places of discomfort and awkwardness that we don't necessarily want to do. And slowly but surely over time through the spirit, the gains will come. You tracking with me? Uh, this is the thing we try to say often, but it bears repeating that person in life group that frustrates you as much as they get on your nerves, okay, is actually God's gift to you to make you become more like Jesus. That is God's grace gift to you to step into becoming a person of love and forgiveness. James K.A. Smith puts it like this very bluntly. 
He says, one of the reasons we go to church is to learn to love people we don't really like that much. Now, I would never say that. <laughs> this dude's coming in hot, man. Like, he goes to church, and he's writing a book. It's like, dude, come on, bad look, man. Uh, but his point is, stepping into community, not backing away, even when it's painful, does something beautiful to your soul over time. You begin to look more like Jesus. You begin to embody the stuff of heaven to help you practice becoming a person who looks a little more like heaven on earth. And personally, I would love if every life group had at least one challenging person in there so that you could step into that. I would love that. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, no one in my group really frustrates me, I may have some sad news for you. <laughs> you might be that person. So do with it what you want. But then Paul lists out in verses 12 through 17, all of these attributes of what it looks like to be this beautiful countercultural picture of church family. He lists out all these characteristics and they all sort of interlock together and play off of each other. But I have three in particular that I want to highlight that I think as nice as they sound, they are just so hard to live out. And the three things are forgiveness, love, and gratitude. So we're going to look at those really quick. Forgiveness, love, and gratitude. Looking at the first one in forgiveness, Paul says, as Christ has forgiven you, in verse 13, so you also should forgive others. Jesus says this similarly in Matthew 18. Um, we're not going to look at it, but I'll just paraphrase it. It is one of the scariest parables I think Jesus offers, one of the scariest teachings, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And the main idea is that if you've been forgiven much, then you too also should forgive. And if you do not forgive, then you may not have understood that you have been forgiven in the first place. Jesus has set you free from the bondage of sin by grace, something you can never earn. And because of that, you ought to forgive others because of how much you've been forgiven. And if not, then that might reveal something about your soul. And this is countercultural, the way of the world, because the world says when someone sins against you, you need to like uh, unleash your wrath on them or pull away from them in the relationship or hold a grudge or gossip, but not the way of Jesus. So when the person in your group says the hurtful thing or says the brash thing, do you choose distance and bitterness or do you choose to forgive and to step into that relationship? That will reveal whether or not the forgiveness of Jesus has truly taken root in your heart or not. And I don't want to make light. Every time we talk about this stuff, I don't want to ever make light what someone has done to you. I can't even begin to imagine some of the stories in this room. But what I do want to say is, if you've been set free from Jesus, you're no longer held in bondage to your sin. And if that's true of you, that will mean you learning to forgive the people in your life who have hurt you. Because you've been set free, you ought to set them free too. Second thing I want to look at is love. Paul calls us in verse 14 to love one another. Elsewhere in the New Testament, John makes it pretty stark here. 1 John 4.20 he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. All right. Now that's John coming in hot with that, right? Like he's making it pretty black and white. You cannot say you love God and have someone in church family that you dislike with a passion or whatever and choose not to engage in that relationship. Because if so, you are a liar. 
the love of God is not really working in you. For He goes on to say, for he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. So that word love, it's the Greek word agape. It's this idea of like self-sacrificing, dying to self, dying to my wants, my needs, my preferences, dying to self to lift up someone else. And this is that same word used to describe Jesus and his love for us and his people, that Jesus dies to himself. He dies so that we might be lifted up, brought into union with God. So to be a person of love quite literally means learning to die to your needs and your wants and your preferences moment by moment so that you can lift someone else up. So that when that annoying person in your group begins to frustrate you, do you shut down? Or do you fight the impulse to choose to listen and speak into them? That will reveal your love of God. Uh, One of my favorite uh, quotes on this idea of love when it becomes so, so hard to do. This is like, I've shared this in a previous sermon before, but it's like one of my favorite sort of Holy Spirit gut punch quotes that I thought I'd share with you. This is Dorothy Day. She says, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Do with that what you want. If the Holy Spirit punches you like it punches me, every time I read that, do with it what you want. But she's basically talking about 1 John, this idea that's pretty black and white. If you do not lean in and learn to love your brother or sister in Christ, how can you say with any confidence the love of God dwells in you? Number three, last thing I want to look at is gratitude. Gratitude, this posture of thankfulness. First Thessalonians 5 speaks into this. It says, in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's this idea The world is filled with brokenness and pain and hardship. Yes, and we can choose to look at all of that and we can choose, then the very natural pull is cynicism and and grumpiness and complaining. And the antidote to all of that is to be thankful with that. I remember um, this happened just this morning as I was leaving to come here For those of you that don't know, a big spiritual giant in my faith and in our pastors and a lot of y'all, Dr. Timothy Keller passed away on Friday and he was just, you know, uh, there's only like maybe a handful of people that have really shaped my understanding of Christianity and Dr. Keller was one of those guys. And he was a pastor in New York City, passed away on Friday. And so I was just online, just reading all of these different articles that people were talking about him. And there was one author that a friend of mine sent me talking about how Dr. Keller just had this posture of gratitude. And that as he talked to staff people in his church and family members, that Dr. Keller just had this posture of gratitude, that he never said a cynical word about anything or anyone. He never complained. He was just in this posture of contentment, that even when people did and said things that were just so incredibly hurtful, He was just always quick to to just hear it and receive it and not sound off or complain or choose grumpiness. And I was just like so convicted in my heart when I heard that. And I was telling my wife this morning about that article and how I was just so convicted. And I told her, "I, I really wanna become that person who like never complains or is grumpy or cynical at all. 
And I told that to my wife and she immediately started laughing at me. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm like, starting now, I wanna be that person, okay? (laughs) But it's this idea like, I don't know about you, I am way uh, susceptible. It's so easy for me to complain and grumble than it is to be thankful. And when I choose bitterness and cynicism, I'm choosing to view the world as this closed system where God is not involved. But when I choose gratitude, I'm choosing to see my sin, the brokenness in me, the brokenness around me. And I'm saying those things will not have the final word over my soul because I believe in the face of sin and death and heartache and heartbreak that there is resurrection on the other side. So even though the natural pull is to be cynical, I will choose thankfulness. And when that happens, when I live out these things that Paul talks about in Colossians 3, the byproduct is peace, not just an absence of conflict, but a wholeness in my soul that even when things are going badly circumstantially, like my soul is anchored in who God is because I'm practicing the truths of Jesus together in community that I'm changing for the better. And it is like oxygen to my soul. The people around me were fighting together to choose the way of Jesus. We're not perfect, but we are slowly by the grace of God through his spirit, slowly making progress. Every time we step into this, slowly getting heaven more and more into us. So when that person in life groups, they, they start talking and they're talking for a while and they're eating into way into other people's time, you're, you could be tempted to treat them rather unlovingly, or you can say in your heart, you know what? I'm glad they're here. I'm glad they have a space where they can talk through what's going on with them. And yes, maybe someone needs to pull them aside and say, hey, let's just be mindful of time. But hey, thank you, Jesus, for this person. You are using them to help me become a person of love. Or when there's that personality in the life group who's just, you know, kind of like sandpaper, just like gets under people's skin uh, and you're tempted to have in your heart uh, this feeling of resentment towards this person. Rather, you might be reminded of this passage in Colossians 3 to say, Jesus, thank you for this person in my life. You put them in my life and in my group to teach me something a little bit more about yourself. And also, yeah, maybe pull them aside and have an honest conversation like, hey man, I don't know how you think you come off, but it's not helpful. Maybe have that conversation. But again, thank you, Jesus, for using this person to make me become a person of forgiveness. It's no accident they're in this group to help me look more like Jesus. Or with the person in your group who just says the same things over and over, and you might be tempted to just have your eyes glaze over and just, you know, tune out. You realize God has put this person in your life for a reason. So rather than pull away, you press in. You speak into their lives. Perhaps you lay a hand on them and offer to pray for them, to remind them of what's true in scripture. And you can say, God, thank you for this person. Thank you that they take their sin seriously so much to wanna talk about it weekly. Thank you for using them to make me a person who is thankful. And I love how Paul wraps it up in Colossians 3, 16. He says, let the word of Christ then dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. He says, after all these commands, put on Christ, live this out, embody heaven on earth. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let God's word sink into your heart more and more so that you can further live this out. He basically goes on to say, keep on pressing into this 
Keep on striving after this. Don't give up. Don't, be, don't back out. Don't throw away the towel even when things get tough. Don't be tempted to say and to act on this idea of things are really tough here. Maybe I ought to find a new group or a new church, but rather when you hit that wall of frustration or you hit that obstacle that you choose to practice the way of Jesus and you let God's word dwell in you to remind you that you are loved and forgiven. Therefore, you can choose love and forgiveness even when this frustration happens. And oftentimes when you choose that, that is where the real growth happens. That's where the spirit really starts to do a number in your soul. When you hit that obstacle or that frustrating person and you're like, ah, why is this person here? You choose the way of Jesus and to press onward. That's when the spirit really begins to do the work in your life to make you more like Jesus. So Paul says, so sing about it and let's talk about it. Let's do whatever we can to push in this direction. So to get really practical for us here this morning, um, if you are not in a life group, I would encourage you jump in one. This is the vehicle by which God uses us to grow into the image of Jesus through community, being together, confessing sin together, sharing life together. Give it a chance. Risk being in it for the long haul. Give yourself to it. You were created for this, to be a part of a people following Jesus. Put these things on. And if you're in life group, don't just sit on the sidelines, but step into it. Speak into other people's lives. Hop in, get involved. And maybe if you've been around for a while, let's say you are in a life group, you've been around our church for a long time, let me ask you, what is it that you need to put on in the way of Jesus? Is there someone who's hurt you that you need to forgive? Is there someone who frustrates you and annoys you and that you need to love? Are there places in your life where you need to choose gratitude over grumbling? In which ways do you need to put on the character of Jesus to step into that? What do you need to practice? And so to, to wrap up here every single week, what we do is we participate in communion. And communion is not just simply like this rote thing that we do because we're Christians and you know that's what we're supposed to do. But rather when you look at what scripture talks about and even how uh, people across the span of 2000 years have talked about the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, it's this idea of this, this twofold thing. It's this idea of repentance, of like, we hear God's words spoken over us. And then before we take part in eating the bread and, and drinking the juice, we're asking ourselves, God, where are the gaps in my life? Where have you been using the teaching of God's word to reveal the brokenness and the sin in my life? Spirit, help me by your grace to forgive me my sins so that I might walk into deeper fellowship with you. That's that first part of communion. But then there's that second part. And the second part is unity. This idea like we are doing this together, that just as the bread early on in the early church, it represented like one body, like we are one body representing that Christ's body was broken for us. So the call to engage in the Lord's Supper week by week, it's a call to repentance, but it's also a call to unity. That if there is anything going on amongst you and someone else in church family to be reconciled, to repent, to press into the relationship, 
to ask forgiveness if you need to, to have the conversation if you need to, because if we engage in the Lord's Supper, but we are not repenting and striving after unity, then that is saying something that is not true over us. And so for the last 2,000 years, it was often right before you enter in and engage in those elements to ask the Spirit, invite the Spirit to search your soul. Where are the spots and the places? You need to step into repentance because I'm reminded of what Willard was saying in that quote we shared earlier. It's not enough just to believe the things, but to live into and to act on what we say we believe. So I would encourage you to process before we engage in the elements of the communion table. Process, examine your soul. Are there any people that you need to have the conversation with to choose the way of love and forgiveness? Are there things you've been grumbling about that you need to choose the way of gratitude? Are there uh, wants and preferences that you've been clinging so closely to that it's causing fracture and division in our church family that you need to let go? Do so, because this is what we're going for. Heaven on earth, trying as best as we can in the power of the spirit to be the most compelling, beautiful community on the planet. And the good news is we don't have to reinvent the wheel or come up with great PR. We have the best news on the planet that Jesus came to save sinners like you and I and anyone can get in on this. And when we step into this, putting on the way of Christ into our lives, we become a refuge to the world, a city on a hill, this place where life abounds and flourishes because Jesus is alive and at work and continues to build his kingdom and the gates of hell will never overcome it. This is what I need. This is what you need. This is what our world needs. So let's step into this together. Will you pray with me, please?